All right, today is the uh, third and final uh, class on these little mini mini series on Shimshon. So uh, I did want to pick up on some of the themes we had discussed and see if we can expand them to some degree. Let's begin by pointing out the following thing about the story of Shimshon. The story of Shimshon begins in chapter 13 of Shoftim, book of Shoftim. And chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16. So there are four chapters on Shimshon. What's interesting is, if you look at the four chapters on Shimshon, they seem to break down into two parts. The first two chapters end with, uh, I think they're back, chapters 13, chapter 14, and chapter 15. Chapter 15, not 2 and 2, but chapter 15, the third chapter ends with the verse, by Yishbot that Israel be made Kushtim Esrim Shanah. So Samson was a judge, whatever judgments, he led Israel uh, in the days of the uh, Philistines, he made Kushtim for 20 years. This ending seems to summarize, that's what you expect at the end of the Shemshon story, but the Shemshon story doesn't actually end there, as we have it in our text, we have a new story which begins in chapter 16 Shimshon's involvement first with the woman of Azza uh, and then of course Shimshon and Delil which is chapter 16 and that story ends also the same way in the end of chapter 16 Yisrael Very strange. So it's exactly the same ending. Samson judged, they buried, took Shimshon, they buried him in the grave of his father. He judged Israel for 20 years. So the two, two pieces of the story end exactly the same way. Whether this was initially to, I mean, we don't have no idea. I mean, this kind of person, this uh, unusual person, super, kind of Superman person, but a fragile Superman, no doubt there may, there may have been a hundred stories about this guy. Our text has seems to be a collection of two different pieces of the Shimshon story. Maybe there, maybe there were more, and there are two endings to the story. It's very interesting. There are two endings to the story. So what's curious is to think about the two endings, how they relate to each other. And the truth of the matter is that the two endings of the story have something else in common. It's not just that each one says he was a judge for 20 years. But each story, the first story ends with the chapter 15, we'll get to that in a minute, it ends with the near death of Shibshon. Shibshon is going to die at the end of chapter 15. And the reason he's going to die is because he's going to die of, uh, of, uh, of a thirst. Right, by he's very, very thirsty, and he cries out to God. He says, "You, you allowed, you granted your servant this great victory." But now, I will die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised ones. That's the Philistines. So it says, "By Hashem Elohim." So God split open the hollow, which is in Lehi. 
and the water came out by Yesh that he drank. And his soul he regained the strength and he lived. Therefore, the place is called the well of the one who cried out until this very day. And the last verse is he judged Israel for 20 years. So we have in the first Shimshon narrative, let's say, which ends at the end of chapter 15, we have the near death of Shimshon, the concern that after his death he would fall into the hands of the, of the uncircumcised ones. Apparently he suspects with, with, with cause that if his body fell into the hands of the Philistines, they would mutilate his body, they would degrade, degrade his body. So he cries out to God who responds to him. That's the end of chapter 15. The next chapter, famous chapter of Shibshon and Delilah, there we have a similar story. At the end of the story, he is captured by the Philistines, as we all know. He's blinded, thrown into a jail. He's supposed to... They make sport with him to play in front of them. At the end of the story, he, uh, he says, he says, God, give me strength. I will die with the Philistines. And he destroys this house which he's in together with everybody else. And then they take him and they bury him in the grave of his father. He judged Israel for 20 years. So you have in the two accounts, essentially, this very parallel story. In the first account, his, his near death. And the second account, his actual death. Both of which point out he judged for 20 years, which is itself interesting to judge for 20 years. In the book of Shoftim, in which the story is embedded, the judges typically are judging for 40 years. 40 years being a generation. Judging for 20 years is curious. He's judging for half a generation. I think there's something to be said about judging for, for, for 20 years. The significance of judging for 20 years. And as a way of an analog, I'll give you another example of what I think is a relevant example. And that is the story that I mentioned, which I think has very interesting connections to Shimshon, and we'll get to more of that today, is the story of, uh, of, of Joseph. The Joseph story, of course, is the foundational text for many stories in the, in, of our Bible. Megillah Esther is largely based on the story of Joseph. And there are other stories within our Tanakh that clearly are related to Yosef. In the case of Shimshon, it's also related to Yosef. We pointed out some of the parallels today. We'll get more deeply into that. What's curious, the death of Joseph. Joseph dies, says the Torah, when he's 110 years old. So actually gives, the book of Genesis is not always given the, the length of Allah, how long somebody lives. In the beginning, yes. When you get past the beginning of Breshit, it doesn't usually give the years of the person who died. Who died. It does it for the Avot, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It does it for Yishmael, actually. It does it for Joseph. It does it for Sarah. It's about it, I think. No one else. The other ones, he never tells you. Rebecca, the other, the other women, it never says. But with Joseph, and it doesn't give the, in Genesis, it doesn't give the years of the other brothers. It does give it in, in Shemot, in the beginning of Levi. But in Genesis, that's it. So the number of years that Joseph lives is 110 years, and that is an interesting number. 110 says to me the following. In the beginning of Breshit it says that the years of the human being will be 120. 
it's true that the patriarchs and the matriarchs too also exceed that. That's another problem. But the years are 120. What does it mean to say Joseph dies at 110? It's interesting. So I think there is there it's the following. Joseph at the end of his life prophesies that Israel will be redeemed. That's what he says to his brothers. And when this happens, you should bring up my bones from there. Um, but Joseph is not able to... Yeah, we have the Beit Midrash there. Man. What can we do? We have 60 people learning all day. I can't do nothing we can do about that. Uh, but the... Um, the Joseph is not able to bring the deliverance. He, he prophesies deliverance, but he says to his brothers, someday God will deliver us, someday God will redeem us, but, and when that happens, you'll take my bones back and, and you'll bring me there. But, but uh, it's, uh, he can't do it himself. He's powerless to do it. In fact, essentially what he says, I was the first one down here, we need God's redemption. So, it, uh, it's about... I would say the, there's a lot of unfinished business. Joseph is God's, uh, the vehicle to enslave the people. That was God's plan. But Joseph is unable himself to redeem the people. And I think the idea, the idea of 110, someone else is going to have to come who's able to somehow to, uh, you know, to, uh, to bring about redemption. That's not Joseph, but rather someone very related, similar to Joseph and Moshe is what Joseph might have been Moses had he lived longer, but Joseph died at that point before he could actually bring about the redemption. In the case of Shimshon, the idea of 20 years is, is curious. 20 years means that his work is, is, not, is not completed. Shimshon represents the, yes, he does kill many Philistines, but the, he, can't, he doesn't succeed in actually bringing anything to fruition. And in fact, what becomes very clear in the story of Shimshon is Shishon represents the idea that this particular mode of operation, namely the judge, charismatic judge who fights the enemy, is not going to be the way to, to, to defeat the enemy. Is that really moving forward? This, this model is, is, a, is, a, is a flawed model. The, net, the, the model we move to after uh, Shimshon, after the judges, is the model of, of, uh, of kingship. And that's, uh, that's the next, next book, actually. You think about the last chapters of this book are a kind of coda which talks about the need for a king. But the next actual story directly related to Shimshon is the birth, of, the birth of Shmuel, which has all kinds of parallels. And we'll see that that story picks up where this one leaves off, namely the need for a different model to redeem Israel. Just to make this point stronger and better, I would point out the following thing about the Shimshon story. Shimshon in the last chapter, Shimshon part two, is the story of Delilah. We'll get back to her in a little few minutes. But after Shimshon is captured by the enemy, um, he is blinded by the Philistines and he's thrown into, uh, into, uh, into jail. This is the, uh, found in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse number... Um, Let's find it. They capture him in verse chapter 16, verse number 21. 
by Hitochin Bebeta Asurim, he can't escape the Philistines. His strength has left him. His hair has been cut. They gouge out his eyes. They shackle him in bronze fetters. He became a mill slave in the prison. The word for prison in the story is Beta Asurim, the house of those that are tied up. Joseph is also in Beta Asurim. Right? He's, he's Asur in Beta Asurim. Like Joseph, he's bound up, he's tied up. The story here is that the Philistines are very pleased that they captured their enemy. And they gather, it says in verse number 23, to make a great feast, great party. Zevach Godol with Dagon Elohim Usimcha. Bayomru. Natan Elohenu Biodenu et Shimshon Oivenu. They said, God has, our God, Dagon is their God, has given to us our enemy Shimshon. In other words, the Philistines are celebrating the capture of Shimshon and attributing his capture to the God of the Philistines, whose name is Dagon. Right? And they say also, by Halua, they praise their God. And they were very pleased, they were probably drinking or whatever, their spirit was very good. Let Shimshon, here they translate, dance for us. So the story over here is that they want to mock Shimshon, who was blind, and they, and they had this tremendous party for their god Dogon, and they make, Shim, they make sport of Shimshon, they take him from Beit Asurim, and afterwards he's leaning against the pillars of the house. What's interesting is that this story, this picture of Shimshon, reminds us of another story in the uh, Bible, and it's the... the parallel is actually very interesting. The story I'm thinking of is the following story. It's a story that appears in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. beginning of the book of Shmuel, we have again a war against the Philistines. There it says that Israel is at war with the Philistines. It's in chapter 4 of Shmuel Aleph, well-known story. The Philistines go out the Jews, the Israelites go out, corruptly means to fight, and they gather together, and the Philistines get their army together, and in the initial battle, the Philistines win the battle. So after Israel loses the battle, the Jews say to themselves, why did we lose the battle? Verse number 3 on page 578 in this translation, why did God allow us to be defeated today before the Philistines? Let's take from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant. Let it come in our midst and it will save us from our enemies. So they send to Shiloh, which is the place of the temple. And they bring from there the Ark of the Covenant. And then the writer adds, And the two people, together with the Ark, probably transporting the Ark, none other than the two sons of Eli, who are earlier described as being wicked people. 
And in fact, God has prophesied earlier to destroy Shiloh and to destroy the house of Eli, or to render it very weak. And the two villains, the earlier in the book of Shmuel says that God hates them. God, and these are the two that are carrying the ark into battle, the purpose of which is to ensure victory. To ensure victory, right? We know we will win because uh, we have the ark on our side. God is on our side. So they go into battle, and when they go into battle, suddenly, it's very interesting, the book of Shmuel allows us to see this from the standpoint of the Philistines. The Philistines hear it, hear the Jews cry out with a loud cry, a very confident cry. What is this cry? What is this truah? And the Philistines said, it must be that God has come into their camp. Woe unto us, the God God who defeated their enemies at at, at Egypt, in the desert, right? But nonetheless, be brave, O Philistines. Be men and fight. It's interesting that the writer actually, the usual, looks at it from the standpoint of the other one. And it presents them as very, in a way very courageous. They're going to, nonetheless, what can we do? Fight on. It's going to be difficult. The God of Israel is against us. The victorious triumphant God of Israel. Of course, what happens is, by Enoch of Israel, Israel was defeated. The terrible loss. 30,000 die. The Ark of God is captured. And the sons of Eli, Chafi and Pinchas, die in battle. That's what happens. Now, the rest of the story is, I mean, the continuation is not for us right now. Ailey is informed what happened the, when he hears the news about the ark being captured, he collapses and dies. All that is true. And then, in chapter 5 of Shmuel Aleph, and chapter 6, the book of Shmuel describes what happens to this ark which has been captured. The Philistines take the ark, and where do they put this ark? Can you guess where they take the ark, bring the ark? They bring the ark in chapter 5, verse number 2. What do you know? They bring it to the house of Dagon. Dagon is the god that they were worshipping in the story of Shimshon. When all the gathered together, all the Philistines gathered together with the officers, with the chieftains, to celebrate the capture of Shimshon and to attribute the victory to the god of to to. to to Dagon. Right? They, earlier they said, look, the God of Israel is in the war. And that's what the Israelites said as well. We have, why did God cause us to lose? But God, let's bring God into the battle. Let's bring the ark. The presumption bring, if you bring the ark, then God goes with the ark. That's what they're assuming. What happens to Dagon over here in the story? They wake up next morning, and Dagon has fallen in front of the ark. They pick him up, put him back in his place. They come the next day, not only has he fallen before the ark, but the head and the hands of Dagon were cut off. Only the trunk was left. That's the next. So, and then it says that God, the hand of God was heavy upon the Ashdodim, and God wrought havoc among them. He struck Ashdod in his territory. And when the people of Ashdod, which is one of the Philistine cities, saw what was happening, they sent the ark to a different city. When the ark gets to a different city, more, more trouble, plagues, disease, death. So the Philistines say, this is not good. Let's send it to a third city. They, they went, the third city says, no, thank you. We're so interested. Let's send the ark back. The ark is sent back to Israel. When the ark comes back to Israel, a place called Beit Shemesh, and they, said, they looked at the ark, 
and many died. From Beit Shemesh, the office transported in the book of Shemuel to a little town called Kiryat Yarim. I've been in Israel recently, you know that Kiryat Yarim is right next to Beit Shemesh. Now, without getting to the details of, say, the book of Shemuel, which we'll never extract ourselves if we do, um, what is the point of the story? And what is the relevance to the Shimshon story? It's actually directly connected to Shimshon. It's actually a very important point about the story, the story of the Ark and the Philistines in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel. Like the Shimshon story, it's about Dagon. The Philistines make one basic error, with which they pay very dearly. They are assuming that in the defeat of Israel, they also have defeated the God of Israel. And the Israelites think the same way. The Israelites say, let's bring God into battle. If we bring God into battle vis-a-vis this object, this ark, it means that, we can, in a sense, we are forcing God's hand. God is not going to allow us to lose, that would be, because that would be bad for God. So therefore, we're going to force God to be on our side. We're going to win the battle because God is on our side. So what actually happens in the story? They are defeated. The Philistines assume they're defeated because they have defeated the God of Israel. And like the Israelites, they assume in the defeat of Israel, they're also defeating God. Because they assume that the two are tied together. But lo and behold, the truth emerges from the narrative of Shmuel, which is, no, you have defeated Israel, but you have not defeated God. You defeated Israel because, guess what? God is actually not on their side. God is not on your side either. But God is on nobody's side. God is on God's side. And therefore, God will allow Israel to be defeated. Not only allow them to be defeated, when the ark returns to Israel, they're also smitten with, with terrible with death. God chooses not to dwell amongst Israel. God chooses not to be in Shiloh, because it's corrupt. But that doesn't mean that God is with the Philistines. On the contrary, God will wage God's own battle with the Philistines, regardless of what happens to Israel. Then do with Israel. God doesn't like the Philistines. It's very simple. If they are God's enemy, God will destroy them. That doesn't mean to say that God will save Israel in the process. Indirectly, it probably helps Israel. That's indirect. But directly, God chooses neither side because the two sides, says the book of Shemuel, are talking exactly the same language. One is hardly better than the other. And therefore, we need to go in a new direction. That is exactly the story of Shimshel in the book of Shoftim. The Philistines bring Shimshel to the house of Dagon. And what they don't understand is Right, we have, they, they defeated Shimshon. But the point of the story is, Shimshon is actually, in other words, they won't be able to defeat God. The, in other words, God may still use Shimshon to fight God's battles. Shimshon in no sense in his stories ever directly fights Israel's battles because he's never amongst the Israelites. He doesn't live amongst the Israelites. He indirectly brings defeat. He brings defeat upon Israel's enemies, so to that extent, he's fighting for Israel. But in the story, he is not, it's not about Israel. As we pointed out, Israel has no interest in Shimshon. On the contrary, they actually tie him up, try to hand him over. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have God's own particular interests, that's the point. So the only question is, can Shimshon be God's representative or not? That's the only question. God's representative. God could kill the Philistines a different way. But is Shimshon an appropriate representative of God or not? And that's the story of Shimshon, and that's the story of this idea of the, of the Nazir. The story of Delilah 
is about someone who, who somebody loses his way. He allows Delilah to, to, to weaken him, and he allows Delilah to weaken him. It's a very interesting question how that works. In the story, which is chapter 16, Delilah is paid by the Philistines to extract the information. How is it that Shimshon has this supernatural strength? That's the question. They go to Delilah and they come with money and they uh, say to Patioto, seduce him, right? Coax him, seduce him, see what his strength is, where, from where it derives his supernatural strength. And now we will we'll be able to, to defeat him. And we will tie him maybe to torture him and literally to make him helpless. And we'll each give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So it's a straight out bribe. We're going to give you money if you can't find out or figure out something no one knows from where comes this un- unnatural strength. So this woman, Delilah, we are told in verse number four, Shimshon loved the woman in Nachal Sorek. Her name was Delilah. This is in contrast to the other two women in the Shimshon story. One is a straight-out prostitute at the beginning of chapter 16. And the first woman, his first wife, is one, as we discussed, is one that in Shimshon's own words, Yashrabi Einai, is suitable for me. She suits my purposes, but the Book of Shoftim never suggests that he actually loves her. He uses her. That's it's his, like seeing and taking. Seeing and taking. But the purpose over here is, yeah, it is that way. It's seeing and taking. He says straight out. And he uses her both when she's alive. He, she gives his, she tells us, she gives the secret, the, the answer to the riddle, which we'll get back to in a little while. And then after she's killed by the Philistines, he then avenges her death. So he uses her both in her lifetime, and he, she, she enables him to be angry at the Philistines, and then he also avenges her death. He then sends the foxes through the field and burns up the fields of the Philistines. With Delilah, it's different. With Delilah, And I wonder, actually, I wonder, I don't know. It tells us where she's from. Nachal Sorek. What does Sorek mean? We have it in the Chumash, actually, the word Sorek, in one place. In the blessing of Judah. Blessing of Judah. When Jacob blessed his, his, his sons, Gura is a lion, right? Or you have to shave it, you and the rod is at the part. The continuation. Osriya. Osri la gefen iro. He ties, binds, Oser, he ties to the vine, his 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 uh mule, whatever. For la soreka bini atono. What's la soreka mean? Let me translate soreka. I presume it's parallel in biblical poetry to so the first part. It's a chapter forty nine. Chapter forty nine. Here they translate 
What page? Uh, 107 in this translation. He tethers his ass to a vine, that's like Gephany row. so ka, his ass is full. Here they translate so as a choice vine. So Delila is from Nachal Soreik. Now what is significant about Delila being from Nachal Soreik? It's very simple. What is it? The Nazarite is forbidden to have wine. So the Nazarite is forbidden. In other words, forbidden fruit is what you're talking about. In other words, the point is, before you get to Delila, who she is, I mean, we know she is from the story. But he married a woman in Nachal Soreik. You can't, if you're a Nazir, you don't get involved in Nachal Soreik. You don't go through the vineyard. That's a dangerous place to be. So he puts himself in a dangerous... Before he gets to the actual story, that's how the Bible works, he drops all kinds of clues. He is falling in love with someone who's very dangerous. And I would say beyond that, falling in love is always dangerous. But the point is, in this particular case, it's very... It's not only dangerous, I would say it's actually forbidden. Therein lies, I think, part of the power of the story, and maybe the tragedy of the story which is, you have somebody set aside from birth to be a Nazir. Now in modern Hebrew, a nun is called a, uh, a, uh, a, a Nazira. It's a nun. And the point of the Nazir in the story of Shimshon is, Shimshon is obviously an extreme story. He has only one loyalty. He can only have one loyalty. He can't serve two masters. He can't serve he can't fall in love, actually. He can't fall in love with a human being. He certainly can't fall in love with a Philistine woman because, he, because that will be a betrayal of his, of, of his mission. So therefore, but on the other hand, it is human nature to want to connect to other human beings. I mean, that's human nature. But in this particular case, he can't do it. He can use the Philistine women. I, I told you, I don't get any sense that he's being condemned for that but he can't fall in love with the Philistine woman and the chapter 16 describes to us this inner struggle of Shimshon as to whether to betray his God the betrayal of God in the story has to do with not the hair being cut the hair being cut I, my understanding is is simply a reflection of a pre-existing situation yeah I'll give you my example I would say the breaking of, of the covenant after Sinai is not because Moses breaks the tablets. The breaking of the tablets is a concretization of an already existing situation. The breaking of the covenant <coughs> is a function of the worship of the golden calf. It's true that when Moshe sees it, he breaks the Luchot, but that is in a way an acting out of, a, of already existing situation. And I think the same could be said of Shimshon. Shimshon does not lose his strength because his hair is cut. He loses his strength. I mean, it, it is when the hair is cut, but the cutting of the hair is simply a concretization of the more basic problem. And the more basic problem is he did something he cannot do in the story of Shimshon, which is what the Shimshon story is all about. And that is he can't betray his God by being intimate with somebody else. And the point is, the intimacy in the story of Shimshon is all about the fact that he has a secret between himself and God. Nobody knows, at the point, from beginning to end, the story, he tells nobody 
about the true mission. In fact, the angel who comes to his father, the mother he, he says something to, but the father, Manoah, is never told the truth by the angel. What, what, what's this all about? Whatever I told you, wife, just do that. You know, he, he never explains. The angel never explains. There's something about secret knowledge in the Shimshon story. And the Wewa tries to coax out of him the secret. And what you have in chapter 16 is this struggle, internal struggle of Shimshon that is described, depicted in terms of how Shimshon responds to Delilah. In chapter 16, Delilah says to him, tell me please, Hagidon Ali, right, she says, How could you be, tell me, from where comes your strength? And how could you be tied up with Anul Tefa? It's very interesting. They translate to render you helpless, but Inui is more than that. How could people torture you? How could people abuse you? How could people hurt you? Tell me, from where is this unbelievable strength? And what's interesting is that you have in chapter 16 this dialogue which takes place in four different steps. Shimshon gives up four different answers. The first three answers are not true. The first two answers actually is interesting. The first two things he says is if you tie me up a certain way. Here we have once again the verb to tie up. His answer is first in verse number seven. That I'll be like any, an ordinary person. So she ties him up. In the next room is the the party, the ambush party waits in the next room, but Shimshon breaks out of the out of the out of these out of the uh, ropes and says, Tasheyina take Oresh as a strand of tow comes apart at the touch of fire. That's the first step. And then she continues, you're mocking me, she says. You deceive me, you mock me, you tell me lies. Tell me, she says, from where, how could we tie you up? He gives a second answer. If you tie me up with ropes, he says, which we use for nothing else. I would say in the second answer, get a little bit closer to the truth. Not that the ropes can do it, but there's something about the ropes which were never used for anything else, which reminds us in a certain sense of Shimshon is unusual. He has one mission in life, which is to, to fight the wars of God, to fight God's enemy. That's the only thing he has to do. But once again, it's about binding up, it's about tying up. Again, it's untrue. And the wife, the Leela says to him, Hey, Talta, again, you mock me. You speak to me lies, she says. Hagita, tell me. Then he says, If you weave seven locks of my head into the web, Masechet, it's a, 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 a weave, Things woven together. It's a masechet. The Gemara you have a masechet. Here's much closer to the truth. Here he's ready to get into his hair. So he's not telling the truth, but he's getting closer to the truth. And the sense I think in the story is that you have this person who, on one hand, knows he can't tell her. On the other hand, there is the, what might say, the human need to uh, to tell the truth, need to confess. It's a basic human need. And here he's being torn. Which which way? On one hand, and he loves this woman for whatever reason. 
And so what, what is he to do? And actually, at the third step, he's very close to telling the truth, but he knows he can't do it. So he says something which is not true, but it's very close to the truth. It's about my hair. And once again, he's turns out that this is untrue as well. But Tomare love, and now we come to the last time. You say you love me, she says. But you don't confide in me. Well, For three times she says, you have mocked me, hey Taltavi. You know, by the way, there is an interesting Zakovich, some place or other, maybe I think, I think his PhD thesis was this. Zakovich, if familiar, Hebrew you, I believe his thesis is the various times in the Bible that we have the theme of three times plus one. I think that's Zakovich's PhD thesis. Three times plus one. You have it in almost. But Zakovich has a whole thesis about this, demonstrating that three plus one is a very common motif in many of the biblical narratives, perhaps the poetry as well. Here you have three plus one. I was thinking that actually, when I'm reading this, it reminds me of something else, which could be my fantasy, it's quite possible. But, uh, I was thinking it reminds me of, of this week's Parsha, actually. In this week's Parsha, you have Bilam sets out to, he thinks, to curse Israel. And in the parasha, as he's setting out with his nar and his narim or whatever and his, his aton, so as he's traveling along, and God didn't want him to go in the first place to curse Israel, God said, what's the point? They're blessed, you can't curse them, so what's the point? He wants to go. You want to go? Then go ahead. He starts to journey, and as he's journeying, in front of him is an angel of God with a sword, but he doesn't see it but the Aton sees it. So as this angel is standing in different places, the road keeps narrowing, the Aton tries to veer off the path because there's a man with a big sword in front of him. Bilam can't see it. And he keeps beating the Aton. Each time he moves off the path, he beats him. And Bilam, and then the Aton talks to Bilam. Says, what, Bilam says, why do you beat me these three times? What do you, what do you do? So Bilam talks back to the Aton, he has a conversation. I mean, it's hilarious, but he says, because you made a mockery of me, he says. You're mocking me. If I only had a sword, I would have, I would, uh, I would kill you. Of course, the angel has a sword, you know. He's the man who's hired to curse with his mouth, he talks about a sword. But in any event, you have three times he's, he's going, and then the the animals try to save him and save herself, I presume. But Bilam uh, doesn't see it. Why are you beating me? Because you're mocking me. Now actually, why is that story in the Chumash? What is its literary function? The answer is for many reasons. But I'll mention one of them in particular. The story of the Aton, who doesn't, who sees. Bilam doesn't see. The prophet doesn't see until God opens the eyes of Bilam. That story has a parallel in this week's parsha, a very precise parallel, because in the continuing story, in the continuing story, Bilam comes to Balak to curse Israel, but he can't curse Israel. Because what can he do? He can only do what God puts in his mouth. 
So the first time he blesses, and after he blesses the first time, Baruch screams at him, what are you doing? So then he blesses the second time, and Baruch screams the second time, and then he blesses the third time, at which Baruch says, you're finished, goodbye. But you know, before I leave, I'll tell you, let me tell you a fourth, a fourth blessing too. Three plus one. Now the point is, in the story of Bilam, in the actual story, the roles of the ass and Bilam are reversed. In the story of Bilam, he's the ass actually. Because he sees perfectly. Balak is the one beating him, in a sense. He doesn't see. And so it's very, in other words, the story of the Atone actually is a prelude to the next story. The point being that, of course, God can put God's words into the mouth of an ass or into the mouth of a prophet or whatever, and the prophet is, in that story simply repeats what God is telling us. So the, I suspect that in the Delila story, the Book of Shoftim has conscripted the story of Bilam in the following sense. Balak's mission, which he fails to succeed, he doesn't succeed, his mission is to deflect Bilam from his actual job. Bilam has one job in this world, which is to bless Israel. He doesn't like to do it, but that's his mission. His mission is to bless. In the story, he blesses. Each time he blesses, though, he incurs the wrath of the other who presumes that it's about mocking him. What are you mocking me for? What are you laughing at me? Don't you love me? You know, that's what Delilah says. But of course the answer is he actually does love her for whatever reason. But he has a different calling. It's not that Bilam doesn't want to curse Israel. He's, I mean, I think Bilam cares, blessings and curses. He whatever pays him the best price. It's all about the money with Bilam, which is another thing with the terms of Delilah. She's doing it for the money. As they said in the Godfather, nothing personal. To Michael, it's not personal. It's just business, right? Point that it's exactly the story. They say, here's money. Do you want the money? One thousand and a hundred. Do you want it? It's good money. Okay, this is what you have to do. It's not about anything more than the money. She doesn't hate Shimshon. She doesn't love Shimshon. And with Bilam, one gets the same sense. It's a profit for hire. His job, though, which he doesn't particularly want to do, he doesn't care. Is to, is to bless. Someone else tries to get him off the track. In the case of the Atone, it's exactly off the track. But, you know, the point is that that then, the Bilam says, well, maybe I should go back. Oh, no, no, no. Don't go back. I want you to go forward. Go for, Just understand that you're going to say exactly what I put in your mouth. That you are the Atone, basically. Whatever. My message must get through and you are the delivery boy for my message. It will incur the, the wrath and the hatred of others, but what could you do? That's, that's your job. And then you have exactly the model of the three blessings and the fourth blessing. Fourth blessing it wasn't hired for. Fourth blessing is a freebie in, the case, in this week's parasha. Three plus one. I suspect that the story of Delilah actually recalls that story. And the issue is, will Shimshon allow himself to be put off track or will he stick to his, to his, to his responsibility which is to, to fight God's battles? Or will he, will he actually confide in the enemy? Will he reveal the secret, which is a betrayal of the story? This idea of secret knowledge is something which is very basic in the story of Shimshon. And I would say that the story of Yosef is, is actually interesting in this respect. Maybe it's different. But in the story of Shimshon, we began this morning by pointing out that there were two, the Shimshon narrative in the book of Judges has two parts. The first three chapters form one part, and then with the verse 
he judged Israel for 20 years. And chapter 16 is a separate unit, which is part two of the Shemshon story. And the two, two, the two of them have, have great similarities and also differences. What's interesting is, we come back to something else which is interesting in the story of Shemshon, and I think unique to the Shemshon story, to some degree unique, this idea of secret knowledge. I would say this way. There's something else which is curious about the Shimshon story, which is that Shimshon is a person who first of all poses riddles to the others. You first meet Shimshon, he's going to marry this woman from Timnah, the Philistine woman, and they have a wedding party, Shemim Brachas, right? And at the wedding party, he poses a riddle. The word for riddle in the case in Shimshon is the word Chida. Let's find that verse. But I gotta find it. Let's see. It's yeah. We'd be on page five hundred and fifty, chapter fourteen, verse number twelve. Vayamalahem Shimshon, Achuda Nalachem Chida. Right? He said, "Let me propound a riddle." If you will tell me the means the answer to the riddle, if you will explain the riddle to me, right? Then I'll give you thirty linen tunics and thirty sets of clothing. But if you can't explain to me the riddle, solution. They said, ask your riddle and we will listen. It's very curious, we don't have any other character in the Bible who does such things. And the riddle is an interesting riddle, it's a very strange riddle. The riddle is this, on the way down to the Philistines, Shimshon and Kat sees a lion. Right? And Nikfir Arayot Shalei, when Shimshon comes to the vineyards of Timnah. Curious. He tears the lion apart with his bare hands, as one might tear a little, a little goat. He doesn't tell his parents. He returned back later to, to marry this woman and he was curious about the lion. When he comes to the lion, he sees a strange thing that inside the lion is a beehive and there's honey. Somehow he is very taken with this image to the degree that when he poses the riddle, what is his riddle? His riddle is, from the one who devours came forth food. Umeaz, and from the one who was strong, Yatsam Matok, came out something sweet. Not now anybody would figure out the answer to this riddle. The riddle is that the answer, of course, is the lion within whom is the, uh, is the, is the honey. When you see such a riddle, you have to ask yourself the question, why is this his riddle? It strikes me that the riddle is actually himself. In other words, Shimshon is, of course, the most powerful of all humans. He's, he's actually superhuman. He's Superman. On the other hand, 
he's not a mere brute that's the point of the story he's brute he's not just a brute he is there is a sweetness apparently as he understands it there's a sweetness to Shimshon I would say Shimshon is not Shimshon sees his role his role is as as defeating the enemy but the enemy of the the Philistines are bad people they're terrible people so he sees his role and that, that is his role from before birth as carrying out doing God's work in this world which is to defeat God's enemies What's, in other words if this is the case then one might say he himself is the ultimate riddle he's a, he's a, he's a mystery he's a, there's something very mysterious about Shimshon on one hand and he, the riddle is the conveys the thought that on one hand he wants to tell he, he wants to reveal to the world who he is on the other hand he understands that he can't reveal to the world who he is the idea of secret knowledge so Shimshon actually poses the riddle in this story over here and of course the Philistines find out the answer by pressuring his, his wife by threatening his wife they find out the answer and Shimshon says to them at the end if you hadn't he said he said they said what is sweeter than honey what is stronger than a lion had you not plowed with my heifer you would not have guessed my riddle so he gets very angry and he goes to Ashko and he kills 30 Philistines he takes their clothing what's interesting is that not only do we have a riddle of Shimshon in this chapter uh, 14 but we have something very similar in chapter 15 in chapter 15 is when Shimshon is tied up by his own people the tribe of Judah ties him up and Shimshon they don't kill him Shimshon says to them do not kill me you can tie me up but don't kill me another 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 little statement that reminds us of Joseph once again the brothers throw him into the pits into the bar by the way the bar the bar is in chapter 37 of Genesis in chapter 39 of Genesis Joseph says in jail the bar is also the jail so the two stories of Joseph are parallel the Beta Asurim which Joseph calls a pit is parallel to the pit of chapter 37 Joseph is one whose own brothers throw him into the bar and he's the same person whom the Egyptians throw into the bar he's the ultimate outsider he's, he's, not, he's not among the Jews he's seen as the enemy and among the Egyptians he's seen as the enemy but in each of the two cases it's something interesting about Joseph and that is in each of the two cases one might have expected that he would be killed in the first instance the brothers say straight out there comes the dreamer let's kill him and throw him into the pit says Reuben you can't kill him with your bare head don't kill him you cause his death throw him into the pit and he'll, he'll die but you shouldn't kill him with your own hands so he's going to die then Judah says to the brothers why should we kill our brother let's not kill him let's sell him and in the interim something happens either they sell him themselves or someone else sells him but in that story of Joseph you see the way the discussion should we kill him should we kill him or should we cause his death or should we not kill him at all but instead of that, they, they throw, they throw him in, instead of killing him, they throw him into the pit. And in the case of Shimshon, you have exactly that. The tribe of Judah says, we've come to tie you up. Because you're making trouble with the Philistines and with the kings. You care, the Moshalim. Says Shimshon, okay, but do not kill me. Promise me you won't kill me yourself. It's reminiscent of the Joseph story. And by the way, I would add something else. And in the second story of Joseph, 
Joseph in Egypt, Mrs. Potiphar, in that story, she complains to her husband, Potiphar. One might have expected in the Joseph story that Joseph would have been summarily executed by, her, by the husband. After all, who is Potiphar? Sarah Tabachim. He's the chief butcher. And whether he's butchering human beings or butchering animals, who knows? But he's a butcher. And the point is, he's not squeamish about blood. Here's a guy who's accused of betraying him. Now, it could be as a believer. Maybe he's heard the story before. That's also possible. But in my point is, each of the two stories, one might have expected Joseph to die. But in each of the two stories, Joseph does not die. Instead of being killed by the Sarah Tabachim, which we would have expected, he's put inside the bar. So the Joseph story is very interesting. Here's the question, what, what fate will befall our hero? Death or, or imprisonment? In the case of Joseph, in both cases, he's not killed. He's imprisoned. And the Shimshon story plays off that as well. Because when the tribe of Judas comes, you would expect them perhaps to kill him. So Shimshon says, don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to tie you up. So when the, Shimshon is tied up in the story. Now, Shimshon, of course, escapes. He escapes the way he breaks out of the bonds that Delilah tied. The first bond that he's tied up with Delilah, remember what the text said about how he breaks out of the bonds? It's like the fire, the rope which breaks when the fire approaches. Shimshon, as his name might suggest, which is son, is represented by fire. He's the fiery son. Over here, he breaks out of the, out of the rope, the fla- like the flax that catches fire. The bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of an ass. He picks it up. And he killed a thousand men. A thousand Philistines. And Samson said, this is interesting, what does that mean? Curious. It's an epigram. With the jawbone of a chamar, with the jawbone of an ass, what does chamar chamaratayim mean? What is chamar chamaratayim? The JPS translation is correct over here, which is, you have it in the, in the plagues, in the ten plagues. What is chamarim chamarim? Piles and piles. Bilchia chamar, it's an epigram. With the chamar, chamar chamaratayim. What does that mean? Bilchia chamar, chamar chamaratayim. So Shimshon poses the riddle. In this case, he actually interprets the riddle. He then explains. Bilchia chamar, he kate the fish. With the jawbone of an ass, I have killed a thousand people. The point is, you see something very interesting about the Shimshon story, which is. He does two things in this little epigram over here. A, he poses the riddle, but B, he also solves the riddle, solves it for us. And it reminds us very much of Joseph. With Joseph, it's interesting, Joseph is, does, has two things, only one in the Chumash like this. Joseph is one who has dreams. In the case of Joseph, it's not riddles, but dreams. But they're not so far apart. In the case of Joseph, it's, it's dreams. Joseph has dreams. So does Jacob have dreams. 
what distinguishes Joseph is that the Joseph narrative is not just about his own dreams, but the Joseph narrative is even more about his ability to interpret other people's dreams. He's both a dreamer, but he's one who interprets dreams. The book of uh, Shoftim, in the Shimshom narrative of the Nazir, seizes upon this aspect of the Joseph story. Joseph is very central to the Shimshom story. It's what I dawned upon me a while ago, how central the Joseph story is. Shimshom himself is the ultimate riddle. In other words, in the first part of the story, he poses riddles. He, two riddles. One is the riddle of the Azin Matok, and the second is the Bukhiyah Chamor Chamorotayim. What does that mean? And then he, he solves the riddle for us. In the second piece, which is Delila, there's something else. She's trying to figure out the, the ultimate riddle, which of course is the ultimate point of the Shemeshon story. From where does your strength come? So the, there, she has a difficult, she can't figure it out herself, actually. Now you can't figure, the only way to figure it out is if Shemeshon tells you. Well, Shimshon, Shimshon knows the answer to the riddle. Shimshon is both the riddler and the one who is the interpreter of the riddle. Now, by the way, I would add something else about riddles. I know if this is true or not, but it's true in English. It's probably true in, in he as well. I'm wondering about the word about the word riddle actually. The word chida, chida. Now I don't know. I didn't look this up. It's a pure guesswork on my part. But chuda chida v'nishba'ena. But the word riddle is this way in English. The word riddle is the hostile word. To riddle somebody. To riddle, he was riddled with bullets, you say, right? Riddling, riddle is not a neutral word. Riddle is a hostile word. So Shimshon, the, the idea of, to some extent, there's a taunting side to the riddle. Of course, the Philistines are the ultimate mockers and taunters of the Bible, but... There's something about Shimshon, which in this respect is Philistine-like. There's something hostile about Shimshon. The riddles are not... In other words, when you read the story of Shimshon, you wonder whether... Because he says he married the Philistine woman who suits his purposes. He's looking for a pretext. Is it that the Philistines coax or pressure his wife to tell the truth and he actually gets angry? Or is it that he, that's what he wants? That's the sense I have. He, he, he doesn't know exactly how it's going to play out. He's not disappointed. This is a one, it's pretext. What better pretext? They plowed with his heifer, as he puts it, and now he's going to pay them, give them their 30 coats. He doesn't have 30 coats. So we'll kill 30 Philistines and take their coats and hand them over. There's something about Shimshon which is very aggressive, but that my point is that the ultimate riddle in the story, the ultimate question is, from where comes, if you don't know the, the truth to it, it is a, it's an amazing thing. As the angel said to Shimshon's father, don't ask me my name, who Pelly? My name is wondrous, it's not normal, it's supernatural. From where comes the supernatural strength? What is the source of it? That's the ultimate riddle. And then, but the only way to get to the truth of it is to reveal it. The very revealing of the truth is problematic. And I have another question, by the way which is tangentially connected. I wonder now, as I'm talking, I'm wondering about the following. Joseph has dreams. Joseph tells the brothers and his father the dreams. My question is, has been for a while, 
it, was, was, was he supposed to do that or not? In other words, is Joseph telling the dreams to his brothers and to his father, who actually don't seem too anxious to hear the dreams? You know, they're not interested in his dreams. Is it is that okay, or should he have kept it to himself? We know that practically speaking, it didn't in the short term end up well for Joseph, because it's exactly the dreams that right. Oh, here comes the dreamer. Interesting in the Chumash, by the way. The anger of the brothers does not seem to be about the fact that Joseph is telling, is slandering them. In fact, when you read the Chumash, if you look at it, you'll see it's not clear that they even know about it. We know that Joseph brings back bad reports to his father. But in the Chumash, you don't actually know whether the brothers know that. When the brothers say, here comes the dreamer, it says, or the Torah says, they hated him. Because of his dreams and his words, the words they're talking about is the telling of the dream. They hated it for two reasons. First, what person has such dreams? But second of all, why are you telling us your dream? Keep your fantasies to yourself. And the dreams are interesting dreams. The dreams are, the first dream is that the sheaves of the brothers will bow down to my sheep. That's his first dream. The second dream is, in a way, even more interesting. The sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down to me. It's a curious dominion over the sun. You have to wonder about the name Shimshon over here. This like supernatural power. It's like a living sun. That's what. That's what. It's, there's something about this which is so. We don't see this in, in the Tanakh very much, or, or, or at all. There's something about this supernatural being. In the Shimshon story. It's clear. And he's not supposed to tell the truth. That's his challenge, is to keep it to himself. Not to betray the secret. And at the end of the day, he finally can, he, because she pressures him, and she, she annoys him, and she, and she constantly, at the end of the day, he caves in. Says he came, he was close to death. He's like, can't, can't take it, he can't take it anymore. So the fourth time, he tells the truth. That's by Yagin Lord Kalibo. He told him his whole heart. Therein lies the problem. We sympathize. By Yomer Lo Moralo Allah Roshi. It's chapter 16, verse number 17. I am a Nazarite from my mother's womb. This is the truth. She can tell that she, she calls the Philistines, she says, it, and they come with the money. It's very sad. And she puts him to sleep. She loves him to sleep on her lap. There's a sense of betrayal over here. So he becomes helpless, weak, and helpless, having told the secret. Of course, the cutting of the hair is simply an acting out of the, uh, of the real problem, which is the giving away of the secret, the telling the secret. And now he's helpless, captured by the Philistines, and blinded. Interesting is the blinding, by the way. He's blinded. The Mishnah saw this as a punishment for straying after his eyes. Which may be true in the case of Delilah. I don't get that sense in the earlier story that he's condemned at all. But I was wondering something about 
this last is di- small digression about being blinded in the story. It strikes me that the blindness you have it elsewhere, by the way. You have another story of blindness, which I think is very interesting. The story of the blindness this is a Freudian interpretation. I actually think it's pshat, believe it or not. Which is this. You have it in the case of Sodom. The Sodomites want to sexually want to rape the two men in the house. And Lord refuses to hand them over. So in the story, he offers his two daughters instead. But the Sodomites have no interest in the daughters. They're actually very annoyed at Lot. He's telling them what to do. So they say to Lot, forget those two guys, we're going we're to get you. And the Chumash says a curious thing. As they're approaching the house, the two, the two guests in the house are actually God's emissaries. And it says that the two men, uh, the, 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 Lot, the people of Sodom drew near to break down the door. This is an interesting verse. Verse 11 of chapter 19, page 33. The people around the house, right? That by the door, they smoke with blindness from young to old they were helpless by you they couldn't find the, the door I think here we have the sexual imagery is very clear in the story what struck me is very interesting is this the idea of, of sexual impotence and blindness are connected here I'm sure it's just I'm sure it's, sure it's cross cultural but what's curious is the verb that says they failed to find the door so it's not a verb that appears so many times in the Torah and it struck me that the Chumash actually plays with this later and that is the story of Jacob the story of Jacob he wants to marry Rachel instead of Rachel right whom does he end up with he ends up with Leah now Leah probably means some kind of an animal and I think in, in other cognate Semitic languages it means some kind of an animal I'm sure that's true but I have to wonder about the following the Torah says when it introduces us to Rachel and Leah it says the following it says her eyes were weak now what does it mean it's a very strange thing to say about Leah her eyes are rakot what is the purpose of that actually what is its literary function? Her eyes are weak. One can say many things about that, actually. Two things jump to mind immediately. One is, her eyes may be weak, but the one who doesn't see in the story is not Leah. It's actually Jacob. His eyes are very weak, since he's ending up sleeping with the wrong woman. Very weak eyes. Point is, that's on one level. But there's something else about Leah, the very name Leah, which for the reader of Genesis, reminds us of that first verse now we have Leah says the Chumash Rachel is very beautiful Leah's eyes are weak which I think translates into from Rachel we expect many 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 children children but from Leah 
Her eyes are weak. So we expect no children. That's about weak eyes. But what, of course, happens in the story? The most prolific of all the matriarchs is Leah, of course, because of God's intervention. By Yarashem God's, God's miraculous intervention. So, of course, the, 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 the irony. The ones whose eyes are weak, actually, is the one who gives birth to all the children. But Rachel, whose eyes are not weak, for Achelach, she has no children whatsoever. I think the same thing is true of Shimshon. The blindness of Shimshon, now I think that the, the rabbis in the Midrash understood this, which is that the blindness is directly related to where Shimshon lives his life, as a playboy. So the punishment of the blindness, no doubt, is related to this ex- lifestyle which Shimshon has, cavorting amongst the Philistine women. I think it's true of the story of Sodom. I think it's true of the story of Leah. I think it's very interesting about Leah. Very name Leah itself. In any event, Shimshon is now blinded. The Mishnah sees it as a punishment. It's a good question. I think one could say, falling in love with the Leah is the problem. Using the Philistine women for his own purposes is not a problem. That's what he's supposed to do. That's his mission in this world. In any event, he is blinded. And now, just to conclude with the following several thoughts about Shimshon. And that is that in jail, the book says a strange thing, he's in jail. He has what might say violated the Nazarite, son Nazarite vow, because he took no vow. But he, vas- he has violated the Nazarite condition. He has given away the secret, and he's allowed his hair to be cut, and his hair is not allowed to be cut. The very, by the way, the very idea of not cutting one's hair, that sets you apart. It's not unique to Samson. Samuel himself. Hannah says, I've dedicated my child to God, and no razor shall cut his hair. He, 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 he will be in Shiloh, but he's apart from the others. The book of the story of Shimshon tells us, in verse number 22, he is a nil slave in the prison. Vayochel sa'arosho with sameach kasher gulach. His hair begins to grow back. And what's interesting is, you have it in the Chumash, it's very interesting, in the story of the Nazarite in the Torah. The Torah spends, as I mentioned in the first class, the Torah spends most of this chapter 6 of Bamidbar, which talks about the Nazarite, most of the chapter deals with a problem about the termination of the, of the Nazarite's vow. What happens if in the middle of the vow he comes in contact with the dead? See how it starts all over again? And then how do you actually terminate the, the, the Nazarite vow? What sacrifices do you bring? What is the procedure? About half the time is spent upon the termination of the vow. What's curious is, in the case of Samson, there is no vow. One might have thought that in the case of Shimshon, with the cutting of the hair, he has violated the vow, or the condition, and it can never be put back together again. But that's not true. You see from the story straight out, the hair begins to grow back is a very important statement. What it means is that it's true that Shimshon is a Nazir, which is very central to the story, obviously. But the Nazir is a reflection of the relationship. So it's not impossible for Shimshon then to, uh, to restore, in a sense, the Nazarite condition. In point of fact, 
when the angel came to his mother and told the mother, your child shall be a Nazarite from his birth until his death. In that statement itself, one gets the sense that till his death he's still a Nazarite, whether, whether he keeps the vow or doesn't keep it, whether he keeps the condition or doesn't keep it, he's a Nazarite. The hair growing back means the possibility of restoring his, his place that still exists for Shimshon. And that's exactly the end of the story. And here, I think, is something very interesting about Shimshon, which distinguishes him from the Joseph story. There's one thing you have in the Shimshon story as a central feature, which you do not have in the Joseph story at all. Well, I wouldn't say at all. I would say you don't have it. One could make the argument you have a bit of it there. And that is something which is found both in the end of the Shimshon part 1, which ends in chapter 15, and Shimshon part 2, which ends in chapter 16. And that is that, let's say, in the first story, the first story ends with Shimshon defeating the Philistines, killing a thousand of the Philistines with the jawbone of the, of the ass. Remember that his, Shimshon's army does not consist of human beings consists of the natural order. So it could be the foxes that he sends through the fields or the jawbone of the ass. He doesn't have human allies. He doesn't, Israel's not on his side. He fights, he fights alone. He's the ultimate loner. At the end of that story, where he, he killed the Philistines with the Luchiah Hamar, by Ma'od, he becomes extremely thirsty. Maybe it's part of being the sun, the heat, the sun. So he's overheated, and he's, he's going to die of thirst. So he says, "Vayomer atona tato biyadav techa et hatishuag the lahazot." You have allowed your servant. He says, he calls himself Avdecha. He says, "I am God's servant." You have given your servant this great victory. Viata amut patzama v'nafalti biyada if I if I die in thirst. I will fall to the hands of the uncircumcised ones. So maybe he's concerned what happens to him after death. Or maybe he's saying to God, I, I do this for you. I, I fight your, your, your wars. Your enemy, the Philistines. You want the Philistines to ward it over me? That's not why you chose me. So he prays. And God responds, but Tasha of Rucho, his soul was restored. You see two things about Samson. First of all, he prays. That's number one. He's probably the only person in this book who prays. I can't think of anybody else in the book of Shoftim who actually prays. Nobody. He prays, actually, and in this first story, which is parallel to the second story, his prayers are about restoring the strength. In other words, he's lost his strength. And now he prays to God to restore his strength. There's something about Shimshon in the story over here, Shimshon in prayer. In the prayer, he calls himself, I am your servant. Now when you read the story of Yosef, it's very striking. What is conspicuously absent from the story of Yosef is any kind of prayer. When Joseph is put in jail, when the Midrash picked up, of course, when Joseph is put in jail, he feels very unfairly by Potiphar. So he's in jail, and then the baker and the butler have their dreams. 
And Joseph says to the Bible, tell me what's your dream? He tells him the dream. He says, oh, in three days you get your job back. You're going to be restored to your post. Please, remember me. Remember me unto Pharaoh. After I was sold from the land of the Hebrews, I'm an innocent victim. Here too I did nothing. They put me in the pit. But the butler forgets Joseph after three days. So the Medrash faults Joseph, actually. The Medrash says, what are you praying to a butler, the Egyptian butler? He's not going to help you. But in any event, the, the, the very chapter of, of Joseph in jail says, more than once, by he Hashem et Yosef. God was with Joseph. By and God, God caused Joseph to be treated very kindly, to be treated very, uh, very well in jail. And the house of Potiphar, all the success, the Torah there, by he Hashem et Yosef, is the theme of chapter 39. It's the only time the name Hashem appears in all these chapters. The personal God is helping Joseph every step of the way. You would have expected Joseph to recognize this and to turn to God. God, you've been so kind to me. Please help me. But instead, the prayer to the butler. That's the Medrash. It's Pshav, actually. It's not Medrash. I mean, they, they, they noticed it. What are you praying to a butler? What happened to the God who's been helping you? That you don't have with Joseph. I would say the only time you do have something like a prayer, not clear if it's a prayer or a prophecy, is at the end of the Joseph story. At the end of the Joseph story, it says, God will someday redeem us. Okay, God will redeem you someday. Sounds like a prophetic statement. He's not saying, God, please redeem us. He's saying, he's, he's, a, he's the interpreter of dreams who's telling you what's going to be. But the Joseph who's in trouble, saying to God, please save us, this you never find in the Joseph story. In the case of Shimshon, it's the opposite, actually. In the case of Shimshon, in a book where nobody prays, in the case of Shimshon, you have a prayer at the end of chapter 15 where he cries out to God, he attributes to God the victory. He knows his strength comes from God. You think this guy is so powerful, he might think he's, he, has no, he has no illusions about it. My strength is from God, he says, and I am your servant, and I do your will, so please help me. And not only in chapter 15, but we also have it in chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, at the end of the story, they place it between the pillars. Shimshon has a little boy with him. Hamachzik Place me and let me lean against the, the pillars, he says. And the house was filled with men and women. And all these heads of the Philistine cities were there. And on the roof, 3,000 of them, Haru'im Bishok Shimshon, they gathered together to watch Shimshon dance, to mock Shimshon. Shimshon So Shimshon cries out to God. It's the end of chapter 16 which is parallel to the end of chapter 15. God, remember me, strengthen me one more time, just this one time. Now it's interesting that that expression, strengthen me just this one time, is an interesting expression within the context of the book of Judges. Because prior to Shemshon, there's another judge. His name is Yiftach. In fact, he read recently the Haftorah of Yiftach. Yiftach's daughter, we know the story. Before Yiftach was sent to redeem Israel, the book of Shoftim says that Israel departed from God and they worshipped all these various gods of all these other nations. 
And then when the enemy was sent, Ammon was sent to to persecute them, to, to to attack them. So the people cried out to God. When the people cried out to God, this is found uh, in the end of chapter ten. In this translation, 542. People cried out to God. The Ammonites were persecuting them. It's very difficult. So Hashem said to Bnei Israel in verse number 11, I did not... All these nations have persecuted you. And every time you cry out to me, I save you. You have abandoned me and you worship other gods. I'm not saving you anymore. Why do you cry out to those gods for a change? And let's see what they do for you. Let's see verse 14. But Israel said to God, We have sinned. Do whatever you want us. But save us this one time. Save us today. They remove the idols. God could not bear the miseries of Israel. What's interesting is, what are they saying over here? Save us this time. In other words, God says, I've had it. Every time in this book, we have the same pattern. You're always crying out, I'm saving you. It's over. Oh, do whatever you want, but this time save us. And we're striking that language, you know, save us now, whatever the future will bear, just one more time. And that's the story of Yiftah. In the case of Shimshon, they don't cry out at all, actually. As we noted, they don't cry out. But Shimshon cries out. Shimshon says, God, save me this one time. So I will avenge myself from my, my, those who blinded me from the Philistines. Save me this one time. And, and God responds to Shimshon. Shimshon regains his strength and is able to destroy the Philistines. Himself in the process, he destroys the Philistines. Of course, the death of Shimshon itself is very important because it, it tells us that this particular model can possibly work moving forward. It doesn't work. But there's something about Shimshon that is very interesting and related to the basic theme of these three classes, which is Shimshon's closeness to God. It's, in a way, he's the closest to God of anybody. He's God's creation, actually, in the most direct sense. There are others who are God's creation, too. One might say Joseph is God's creation because Rachel can't have a child but God remembers Rachel there's something in general in Sefer Breshit where God is intervening all the time to allow someone who normally could not give birth to give birth something miraculous about the birth it's true of Joseph now in the case of Joseph it's more complicated because in the case of Joseph before she gives birth she also bargains for these trafim so it's not clear to whom we are as I mean Actually, the mandrakes precede Joseph. She, 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 she negotiates with her sister to, buy the, to get the mandrakes. She trades off the right to Jacob. And the mandrakes are a kind of fertility pill. The trophim would be before the birth of Benjamin. But before Joseph, it's the mandrakes. So it's not clear, actually. Is God working through the natural order in the case of Joseph? Or is God working on the supernatural level? It's not clear. But in any event, she attributes the birth to Joseph, to, to God. To God is intervening. 
But in the case of Shimshon, it's really the entire thing. No one's asking for it. It's God who pre- God who actually proactively is sending this messenger, this angel. Samson is truly God's creation. And because of that, there's something very deep about their relationship. And you have on two different occasions, Samson is praying. And I just add one little thought to conclude this. There's much more here about Shimshon. I mean, there's something unique about the Shimshon story. There's nothing like it in our tradition. And I would say the following. One of the questions that we could ask ourselves, probably should, we have our, we have our prayers, our Shmon Esrei, the Amida. The Amida consists of basically three parts. It starts with, with what they call Sheva, it starts with a description of God, who is this God, what God does, how God interacts with the world, God's attributes, that's the beginning of the Shmon Esrei. In the middle section of the Shmon Esrei, we're asking for many things beginning with wisdom and health and all kinds of things. Then we conclude with a section called Thanksgiving or Acknowledgement or whatever. The question is, there could be a whole course about this, the question is, what are we asking for? With the middle of that, the main part of our prayers is request. What are we asking? So there are different ways to frame it, but I, I would frame it in this way, I think it's very relevant to what Shimshon is saying. What Shimshon is saying is the following. <coughs> You put me on earth to serve you. That's what Shimshon says. It's, it's more true of Shimshon than anybody. It's true of everybody. But it's certainly true of Shimshon. You created me to, to do your work. Your, my particular job is to kill your enemies. Okay, that's my work. That's what I do. I'm pretty good at it too, you know? I want you to give me the ability to do my work. That's what it is. That's one way to see the Shimon Esrei. You are the God of, right? The God of our ancestors. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? This is who you are. This is you. I, live, I live in your world. You have all kinds of powers. You have power to revive the dead. You have power to heal. You have all kinds of power to untie those that are bound. You recall the You're a God who is keeping your promises to those who came before us. My job is to make sure those promises are kept. So that's my job. So I, in the Shemona Esrei, what I say is this, you know something, I know I'm here, I'm here for a purpose, and I want to do your will. But in order to do your will, I need the ability to do it. So give me the wisdom to do it, and give me the health to do it, and give me the resources to do it. And put me in a place where I can do my work, but others won't try to stop me. Let's have a, let's have a fair society. But the request, essentially, all the requests, are not requests in and of themselves. At the end of the day, what Shimshon is saying is, help me because I'm, you put me here to serve you. I'm the ultimate servant. I'm an I'm Nazir. I, I have a mission. Very clearly defined mission. Please let me do this just one more time. Let me do your will. That's what Shimshon is saying. That's what he says the second time. And that's what he says the first time. Give me the opportunity to do the things that you put me on earth to do. That's the story of Shimshon. There's a great tragedy in the story of Shimshon in the sense that, on the other hand, he has successfully completed his mission. And the moment he completes his mission, which is to defeat God's enemies, at that point he's actually restored to the Jewish people. That's the last verse. Then his father, the brothers, take him and they bury him back in the grave of his father. He's reunited only at that point after death 
That was his mission, to be a Nazir until the day of his death, which he did. And now, he, having completed his mission, he's reunited with the people, but the, the writer adds he judges for 20 years. His mission is completed, but this mission is not a long-term solution to the problems of the people. For that, we have to look elsewhere, and that's the next book, the book of Shmuel. Okay, thank you for attending.